0: Welcome, guys, and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. The mission of Man Talks is to help develop self aware, high performing, and impactful men in the world, the type of men you want to be, and the type of men you want to be around. Now Today, I have a very special guest with me who has made a name for himself in the podcasting industry, in the marketing industry, uh, Mr. Jordan Harbringer. Now, before I dive into that, I just want to remind all the guys uh, that are out there listening to head on over to Facebook and join the Man Talks community. We have some great conversations with some great men from around the world around fatherhood, fitness, finances. We have some weekly challenges and updates and a little bit of accountability from the guys that are in the group. So head on over, facebook.com forward slash dash community or you can just search for talks Community. It'll be the first one that comes up. Uh, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes as well. Leave us a review if you're loving this podcast, and man it forward. Man it forward by sharing this podcast with someone. It goes a long way. We have more than doubled our podcast downloads in the last month, uh, last two months, actually. And so I appreciate everyone out there that has been tuning in. If you're new, thank you so much. If you've been around with us since the very beginning, I have so much love and gratitude for you. Thank you so much for sharing this podcast with people that you care about. So on that note, Mr. Jordan Harbringer. This guy, I've wanted to have him on uh, since I started the podcast. I really love his work. If you've ever listened to The Art of Charm, it is one of the most downla- downloaded and celebrated podcasts out there. Uh, we, it's one of the things that we talk about is actually how he built up the network that he built up and got in touch with some of the people that he got in touch with, uh, interviewed some of the amazing people that he's interviewed and how they have grown their downloaded subscription base to 3.9 million downloads a month. It is crazy. This guy understands social social fluency, and social influence, and that's one of the main things we're going to talk about today. So Jordan Harbringer is an entrepreneur, talk show host, and world-renowned social dynamics expert. As a co-founder of The Art of Charm, he has helped develop one of the leading self-development programs in the world with a special expertise in social capital, relationship building, and authentic rapport. He is also the host of the Art of Charm podcast, where he interviews leading entrepreneurs, celebrities, writers, and experts about psychology, performance, life, and success. For all his work in the field, Forbes named Jordan one of the top 50 best relationship builders in the world and Inc magazine recently called him the charlie rose of podcasting which is a very prestigious very prestigious uh, accolade indeed so uh, jordan started shared his ideas around the world as a speaker and consultant his work has been presented in silicon valley at companies like google apple twitter square and various government branches and agencies including all the branches of the mil- us military the department of state and the department of defense so Clearly, this guy has some serious uh, accolades behind him. He has also given talks on security, social engineering, and psychology at Black Hat, DEF CON, and Harvard Business School. Uh, A former U.S. State Department employee and Wall Street attorney who speaks five languages, Jordan has spent several years abroad in Europe and the developing world, including South Africa, Eastern Europe, the Balkans, and the Middle East. So we dive into a couple different topics today, but mainly our focus is around social fluency, is around how to not only present yourself uh, in so different social situations, but how we can leverage social media for our own personal benefit, whether it's building our own personal brand, whether it's building our business, uh, really getting ourselves out into the the digital age of of marketing, and he shares some of the insights. Uh, through Art of Charm and some of the things that they've done there, uh, some of the things that he shared with the U.S. government, for example. So this is chock full of some juicy details. Um, he brings some great insight and, and has some incredible wisdom and uh, a lot of research, actually, which I was you know pleasantly surprised by. So without any further ado, I would like to welcome in Jordan Harbinger. All right, Jordan, thanks for joining me on the Man Talks podcast.
1: Yeah, I had no choice. It was on my calendar, so here we are.
0: <laughs> we just we just managed to hack our way into your calendar, and and you're here today, so I love it.
1: I was like, Connor who?
0: Oh, <laughs> crap. It's too late to cancel. All right, well, let's do it. You're like, I'm up. I'm here. I've had my grainy bar, and, uh, yeah. and I'm ready to rock.
1: Yep, pretty much. I had a seed bar from my friend, Ben Greenfield. I don't think it's called a seed bar. It's actually called a gluten-free, oh, it's called a nature bite. Gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, energy bar. But it's, you know, these things are, I'm going to pump my friend's product here because it is tasty. Do it's it. just weird. Um, it's, if, if, is your audience health conscious? Yeah, right? Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely, yeah. Yeah.
1: So these are really good. Um, they're backwards in the camera right now, I think. But it's got like a bunch of really, this guy's obsessed with health. Do you know Ben Greenfield? He's I got do. a health podcast and it's just bananas. And it's like, This has, like, organic honey, almonds, cacao nibs, uh, baby quinoa seeds, chia seeds. So I I guarantee you everything in here has been vetted by, like, the most anal retentive health (laughs) nut around. And then at the end, there's probably, like, and it has magic elf hair in it or something. He's really into, like, the fine-tuning of the human body. And so it's, it's one of few things And I don't know if you have this problem. Sometimes I just get hungry at random times. I know everyone experiences that. I'm not asking if you get that, but I get hungry at random times and I'm like, Oh, I've got uh, a drawer with some Skittles in it. And then like, maybe it has got like some chocolate that somebody gave us for our wedding. um, And then the fridge has water and apple juice that I don't want to drink because it's loaded with sugar. And then I've got a box of these or a box of something similar. And it's sort of not guilt-free because you're still consuming something, right? It's not like, remember in the 80s, rice cakes were guilt-free? Like, no, I'm oh, just yeah. kidding. It's pure carbs. Um, so you can eat this and you're like, okay, I, I feel like my I'm no longer hungry. And I definitely am not going to have like a weird sugar spike and all this other weird stuff because I, I started eating only in the afternoon, only in the evening and stuff like that. And I ended up with this weird phenomenon, which is clearly something that everyone gets that I probably had all the time and never paid attention to, which is if you eat a lot the night before, the next day I'm freaking ravenous at like 9 a.m. And it's either a sugar spike or your psychology is all tripped up. So it's, it's weird because a lot of people think if I'm going to lose weight, i got to manage my caloric intake, and then they have a cheat day. And it just screws up everything it's just a constant process of managing your psychology of hunger and then also figuring out what you're going to do when you're actually hungry and also deciding am i hungry or do, am i just super thirsty and my body doesn't even know the difference so i'm going to eat some crap now and like ruin my my experience for the day and i found that really my level of productivity is highly dependent on my diet as well
0: mm. so have you been uh, have you been doing like that that 8 hour uh, the, hour, I think it's it's like 16 and eight or something like that. I think it is where you like, you don't yeah. where you fast for 16 hours and then you eat for eight between like 12 and 8 PM.
1: Yes, but not necessarily intentionally. I started forcing myself to eat breakfast because breakfast is the most important meal of the day air quotes. And then I was like, ah, this is kind of annoying. But I started, then I switched to oatmeal, like steel cut oats. And I was like, Oh, this is good. It's, you know. Pushing everything through, so to speak, without getting you know, too graphic here. So I started eating that, and I was like, oh, it's, it's tasty. And now, now I, I stopped doing that because I realized, oh, that was just a BS myth that, like I don't know, the cereal industry invented or something. And I stopped eating that, and now I'm literally not hungry until 11, sometimes 12, and I eat lunch. And then, yeah, I probably eat dinner before 8 p.m. on most days. So I feel like I'm getting the 8 or 9-hour intermittent fast. But the thing is, I'm not necessarily like, "Wow, I'm so thin now. It's just that I'm not getting an entire meal's worth of calories, whereas before I probably was, and you know, I get regular exercise, so I definitely look better than I have in years and years and years, but whether or not it's a the matter of me walking ten thousand steps a day, which is probably seven hundred calories, that's part of it, and the other part of it is, yeah, I'm not eating like eggs and bacon for breakfast, a burger for lunch, and then you know, pounded noodles for dinner. Um, it really, it really does come down to like these little simple habits that I created over time before my wedding, and then now have put into place, and and I've been something that I I just kept.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because I think everybody has to find their own flow, and we've had a couple guys on the podcast who, you know, dive into the health and the fitness and the nutri- nutritional aspect of things. But um, I've found that personally. And there's a lot of research that shows that not eating first thing in the morning, especially for men as you get into your 40s, and having some fasting is actually a, a hugely beneficial uh, part to actually keeping weight off and not not becoming overweight and whatnot. So it, it's cool to hear your experience with that.
1: Yeah, it, it it I've definitely not been... I'm not one of those guys who's like, I, I'm struggling with my weight, but it, it certainly is one of those things where I thought like, oh, well, you know, I'm not some sort of fitness guru. So this is how I look forever now. And I just kind of didn't really think I had that much control over it, which now is just such a silly mindset to have. But before when I was in school and everything, I was just like, yeah, you know, I go work out every day. I look pretty good, but like, this is it. And I was jacked as hell. in like undergrad. And then in law school, I was like, oh, well, now that I'm not going to the gym every day and eating like, eight chicken breasts a day for protein and trying to get... I was trying to get like two grams of protein per body weight pound of body weight or something. I was weighing... I weighed 209 pounds. You know how much protein that is, man? That is absolutely ridiculous. And I made myself a little bit sick. Not like kidney failure, but I just felt like crap because I weighed 30 pounds more than my frame wanted to handle. 40 pounds maybe even, regardless of whether it was muscle. And there were doctors that were like well, this is muscle tissue, so I'm not going to tell you to lose weight, but I will tell you that this is still bad for your heart. And I was like, I don't care, protein, right? <laughs> and, you know, now I've got this big frame that I'm trying to not have turn into just a bunch of gnarly flab. So I have to, like, go work out every day now in order to avoid this turning into, like, brrr, you know, like now it's <laughs> muscle, and I hope it stays that way. But had I not screwed with my physique earlier, I probably would have looked a lot more like a normal human being.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it, yeah. It, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think that our bodies fluctuate a lot. It's, it's like funny to hear you say that. Cause there was a time I'm like six two and I'm just about 200 pounds now. And I have been for like the last decade, but there was a time in my twenties where I was pretty jacked, like you were talking about. And I was probably 40 pounds overweight. So I was two forty five. And as somebody that's like six, one, six, two, that is, that's a lot of, of extra weight on there. Um, and and I I mean, I was also doing the same thing, tons of protein. Um, I've actually found like the, in the last couple of years, just through consistency, my body has slimmed down. Like even if I can't get to the gym for a day, but I ended up, you know, like piling out 75 or a hundred burpees that seems to that seems to like really help keep me in shape or if I can, you know, pop out like 60 ups or anything like that. Do you do anything like that just to kind of like keep your momentum going on a daily basis so you have consistency in in your workouts?
1: Um, I walk 10,000 steps pretty much every single day. Ironically, the only time I haven't been able to get 10,000 steps today are in Manhattan where you walk everywhere and in San Francisco (laughs) where you also walk everywhere. Because when I'm at, in those places I've noticed you walk, but you might walk like half a mile you might have another meeting a mile away, but you gotta get there fast, so you take a car, and then you're like, oh, I'm gonna to walk to dinner, and then you walk to dinner, and then you're like, oh, okay, I'll walk back, but you've only walked two, maybe three miles, whereas at home here, I can walk five miles, which is approximately the 10,000 steps, at least my stride, and I can walk through my neighborhood, and I can make phone calls, and I can read uh, the audio books that I've got for, for that, and, and it takes like an hour and a half to two hours. That's a lot of time just walking around, and it's a, it's really become what I do when I'm not on air. I take all my calls on foot, uh, so to speak, on the road while walking, and I do a lot of show prep while walking. So the neighborhood basically knows me as that guy who's always texting as he walks because that's what I look like I'm doing. <laughs> I just look like I'm because ha- I'm hammering away notes, or I'm checking our social media accounts all on my phone. But I'm also you know putting down a couple miles. And everyone's like, why don't you get a treadmill desk? And I'm like, yeah, God forbid I should get some sunlight. You know, I live in California. So it's never like, what happens when it rains? It's like, I don't know. People rejoice because there's actually some liquid falling from the sky. So, you know, that's the one day that I'll do push-ups in the garage or something like that. But yeah, I've got kettlebells in the garage. I've got workout stuff everywhere. Because I'm not somebody who's like, I need to work out all the time. It doesn't come to my mind that often. But if I go to the garage and I go to the car and I'm like, I'm on my way to Chipotle and I see there's kettlebells and they've got some dust on them. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. Before I go, cause I've got 90 minutes, I'm going to do 20 minutes of swings uh, and you know, lifts and, and stuff like that. I have to work it into my psychology because I'm not one of those guys that gets up and there's like CrossFit today. Let's go do a wad, you know, let's crush it. I, I don't do that. I don't do that. I wake up going, Okay. I, guess I I, mean, I guess I need to work out today at some point, but not right now. Let's do it later. Oh, here's a good spot on my calendar to do it. And then during that spot, it's like, hey, do you want to take a call with uh, this publisher? Yeah, I definitely do. that. Oh, shoot, I can't work out now. you know, And I'm like, okay, crap, no, let's move it over my lunch hour. And then before lunch, I'll go do a workout in the garage. I had to take all the excuses away because I have to use my own psychology against me or it just... I just won't do it. Like when I used to run a lot, which I always, always, always hated, but got addicted to, I had to do this thing where I would put my shoes. I I would tell myself, look, you don't have to get up in the winter of Michigan back when I lived there and go run. What you do have to do is get up, put on your shoes and your gym stuff, your running stuff, the whole kit and caboodle, the hoodie, everything. Go out and go out on your front porch and then just stretch just do the preliminary stretching. And then if you don't feel like running, you can just go upstairs and go back to bed. Well, I did that every day and I think I maybe skipped one run because it was like raining and windy and I was stretching and I was like, this is miserable. So I I went back in and I don't even know if I went back to bed, but I certainly went back inside. But the rest of all of those days in Michigan, I just ran 5k like every day. And I remember calling the running store And being like, oh, I hope they're open at 7 a.m. And I call and they're like, hi, we're not open yet. We opened at 8.30. And I was like, wait, I just want to ask, is it safe for me to run in the snow? And do you have any tips? I just bought, you know, I'm a new runner. And the guy goes, yeah, run on lawns because the snow is is not packed. Run on people's lawns. Don't run on the sidewalk because there's ice on the sidewalk. You might step on some snow and just wipe out. Or run in the road because it's salted but don't run on the sidewalk and I was like cool and I remember thinking who am I right now is it safe (laughs) to run in the sleet and the ice who is this guy you know so I have to develop habits that always are consistently surprising me and in order to develop those habits I have to create systems that are just so that that beat me at my own game which is like which is everyone's game making excuses figuring it out because there's this willpower this whole like just do it that's that's basically people in my opinion retroactively analyzing how they got somewhere. Well, how did you how do you, how are you still so productive? Man, I just get up and I do tons of work. That's BS. That's what people say when they don't know how to articulate the truth, which is okay, well when I was younger, my parents made me get up early and then they made me do they checked my homework and then da-da-da. or I I was a non-productive student, so when I went to work, I got up early and then when I became an entrepreneur, I kept my habits of getting up relatively early and checking my email and making sure that my tasks for the day were all efficient and da, 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 Like there's always, whenever you zoom out far enough, there's always habits that people have, even athletes. There's, I was talking with my friend, Gabrielle Reese, who's a, a volleyball athlete, Olympian model. She was the first female athlete with her own shoe. Hmm. Um, so, which is kind of a big deal, right? I mean, having your own shoe is like, that's a a big deal. Yeah, that's a um, thing. For any athlete. It's a thing. And she she was like, you know, I never really feel like training. And I thought like, what? You're this six foot four like model volleyball player, super athlete, mom of I think three kids or at least two kids. And she never feels like training. And I thought the only way you could possibly keep it up is if you if you felt like training all the time. And she's like, No, I just I do it because I'm used to doing it for work, it's my living, it's my, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about helping other people do it, but I never feel like doing it in the moment. And she went over on her episode of AOC, she went over some of the habits that she has that keep her training even when she doesn't feel like it. And I thought, if Gabrielle Reese doesn't always feel like training, then I don't feel bad about not feeling like training. But she does it when she doesn't feel like it, which means that I can do that too. And that's just the moral of the story. Like, I think you can talk to just about any athlete and they're not like, I love running wind sprints. No, they're like, I like playing basketball in the NBA, but they're not like, I can't wait to get out on that hill and puke. You know, <laughs> And and it's just important to remember because I think a lot of us who are thinking like, well, I'm not much of an athlete. It's a really easy excuse to say that you're not much of an athlete and then just like do half-assed or not train at all or not, or be like, oh, I just don't have time to eat healthy food. It's like, no, it takes you just as much time to set up a routine of eating healthy food as it does to set up a routine of eating, like, crap. You know, going out and eating salty stuff every day. It's just about figuring out how to use your own psychology against you. Well, no, I really don't have time. Cool. Cool. All right, why don't you have time? Well, I only have a 30-minute lunch. Okay, so what could you do to mitigate that? Could You know it's faster than going to Chipotle for lunch? Bringing your own stuff. Oh, yeah, well, then I'd have to cook and go shopping. Nope, you could hire somebody to make the food for you, put it in Tupperware, and bring it to work. Oh, well, that's expensive. Okay, so your health isn't worth it, or you don't have time. Now, which excuse is it? <laughs> you know, and then you once you sort of boil it down, you realize, like, oh, the stories we're telling, the story I'm telling myself is just convenient. It's not true. Yeah, and I mean, that's it's, true with anything, you know, not it, just fitness.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you like talk about these, especially you know, bringing up Gabrielle Reese and the and the habits. And I mean, it's almost like debunking the idea that we need to be motivated in order to do something first and foremost, right? And that motivation isn't inherently there. We we just had like a a neuroscientist on uh, Bo Lotto, and he talked about creativity. Um, I don't know if you've interviewed him, but he was phenomenal. He's done some TED talks and stuff, but he he talked about how our mind is designed to prevent us from from seeking anything that's uncertain, and so a change in habit is an uncertain. Uh, aspect of our life that we we don't know what's going to happen and so we we inherently avoid it and so how can we be motivated to do something when it seems like a very like uncertain thing to take on every single day and so it's really interesting so in your insight I actually have two questions first and foremost what the hell were you like as a kid (laughs) I can just imagine you being like this little like ninja on the playground that was like connecting with people that just like the 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 picture that i got painted you know like kind of like gary v he must have been like a little hustler when he was a kid he talks about it all the time we had him out in vancouver he spoke at one of our events here and and he was like yeah you know i was selling lemon you know selling lemonade i was selling baseball cards i was hustling as a kid is it is it something that you think is is just ported over from our childhood like were you always this sort of fluid social connector were you always interested in relationships is this something that was like ingrained in you
1: um yes and no so i was always interested in it and i always had people tell me things that i thought were pretty secretive like i was the kid where i'd be talking with some girl in first grade and she'd be like my parents are gonna get a divorce but it's not my fault and i'm like oh um okay uh i don't know what to do with this information and, like, nobody else knew. Her friends didn't know nothing. And then – but I I wasn't, like, a popular kid either. I was kind of, like, this nerdy kid, quiet. And the I, what I noticed back then was, like, the, the so-called popular kids. They always liked me, but I wasn't one of their group, you know? I wasn't, like, getting beat up or anything, but I wasn't necessarily part of their group. And then in high school, I kind of was, but it was a strange phenomenon because – I remember there was like this really, this is funny. I just thought about this the other day. There was this party at this girl's house and the guy, her brother was a football player. And um, I also like, I did like the video for the football team. Cause I'd separated my shoulder. I played as a freshman. I this is another thing that, that was funny. I always ended up with like bad luck that I would spin into good luck. So I'd play football and I'm like, God, I suck at this. And everyone's like, fuck dude. Pardon my Latin. And I was like, fuck me. Harbinger sucks at football. And I'm like, crap, I'm not going to be cruel. I I don't even know why I keep doing this. My friends are on the football team though. So I kind of want to stick with it. I separate my shoulder. My friend does like an after the whistle tackle. And, you know, I try to arm tackle him or something comes out and then I can't play. And I'm like, dang it. And then the the, the coach was like, well, you know, that's it for you. And I was like, you know, um, by the way, I noticed like you guys videotape these and no one knows how to work the camera. And it's always like on the tripod and then half of the frames cut off. You want me to just work the camera? And they were like, yeah, you can work the camera. And we're going to pay for you to go to football camp. And we're going to put you on the varsity team as a freshman because I need you to be able to get on the same bus, which is only varsity kids that go to all the varsity games so you can film all the games. And I want you in the press box with all the coaches and everything during that. So I'd go to every football game stay in the warm press box, videotape the game, which includes, like, standing in front of a camera and, like, making sure that it's zoomed out or zoomed in far enough. You can do it in your sleep. Then I got a varsity letter as a freshman, so that looked awesome when I applied to college. And I was like, all I needed to do was get a slight injury for that? All right, this is great. And I always ended up with weird stuff like that. Or it was, like, um, another time I was wiretapping. I figured out how to open those green boxes uh, in my neighborhood, and I was listening to phone calls. That got me really interested in relationships because I was hearing (laughs) what other people were talking about on their phone calls and stuff. And then I started to figure out how to clone cell phones, analog cell phones, and use them to listen into conversations. And I got caught doing something, uh, ordering pizza for my whole school on like a credit card that I had jacked. Um, And made up like the number or two and and jacked the identity of like this fake person. I guess it's not jacked if the person's not real. And the FBI got called and everyone, the teachers were like, oh, you're so screwed. We're finally going to get to expel this like crappy kid because some of the teachers didn't like me back then either. Um, But, you know, I, I was this is before the varsity football thing. I straightened out back then. So they call the FBI and I'm telling the FBI how I got it, how I cloned the cell phones and how I figured out how to open all these green boxes. And you know, there's this whole world of like criminal hacking going on, but I'm just listening to people. And instead of getting expelled, they gave me an FBI cell phone and I had meetings with them regularly. And I remember the librarian who is like this anal retentive librarian surprise. She (laughs) saw me uh, uh, go out in the hallway And she came out in the hallway to go do something. And she saw me taking a call on the cell phone. And she gave me this weird look like, oh, my God, someone's on a cell phone in school. This is, again, this is like 96. I go back into the library. I'm hanging out. And the assistant principal comes by and goes, you got a cell phone? You're not allowed to have cell phones. And he's like, oh, but, you know, look, I'm more worried. Like, why do you have a cell phone? I don't know. This is the 90s. No one has a cell phone she probably didn't even know what that was. Or she was like, this guy's a drug dealer. Cause those are the people that have cell phones. Right. So he comes by and he's like, I gotta, I, I want to know why you have a cell phone, but before we have that meeting, I, I need to take it. And I was like, Oh, I have a note from the FBI that says that I can have the cell phone. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so I bust out this letter that I've been holding on to, and it's signed by the superintendent of schools. It's like, Jordan can have a cell phone as long as he doesn't take calls in class. They have to be done in private areas. They can't be done during class. They cannot cause any sort of disruption whatsoever. And then like the principal who's never around had signed it. The administrators had all signed it. The school board people had signed it. And then like this FBI bureau chief of Detroit had signed this letter. And it was, he was like, this is the coolest thing ever. I can't believe it, man. You, you're going to the FBI. This is great. And this librarian, I look over at her and I was like, what? You know? And she was just like, because <laughs> she thought, I'm going to watch this kid get in so much trouble. And instead, I'm like piling it up with the assistant principal whose job it was to be the disciplinarian. And then word traveled quick around all the teachers. Like this kid works with the FBI. Like he's not this idiot that we all thought he was like, this is crazy. And so when I got to high school, it was just, it was really funny because every time I got in trouble, it would turn out to be like, well, maybe we shouldn't bust this guy. Maybe we should, maybe we should figure out what's going on here. So I ended up with all of these little sort of spins, but no, it wasn't because I was like this socially fluent uh, amazing connector. It was more like Forrest Gumping it all the way through. <laughs> and, and a lot of it had to do with honesty. You know, why do you have a cell phone? Okay. So I got in trouble for this thing at, that you know about the credit card thing, but this is what happened after that. And then this happened and then this happened. So now I got a cell phone and I work with the FBI. And then the guy was like, Oh, whereas if I would just been like, I'm allowed to have it because uh, I'm working with them, he'd have been like, this doesn't make any sense, but I just spilled the whole story. You know, so this authenticity or at least the dumb honesty a la Forrest Gump is what actually ended up working before. And it turns out that looking back retroactively, retrospectively, I should say, a lot of that authenticity and that radical honesty was probably what got people to be like, hey, my parents are getting a divorce, but it's not my fault. Because I would say something like, I don't understand how to do this assignment or – um. I don't know why none of the girls want to play with me, you know, and that's probably why that girl was like, Oh, well, you're being really vulnerable right now. I feel safe saying this thing to you. Mm. And I've just kind of done that my whole life. But it, it doesn't always work. A lot of people now they're like, be vulnerable. No, I mean, it only works if you have a certain measure of status. When I was doing it as a kid, I didn't have high social status, I had low social status. So it looked like I was kind of, probably a loser, frankly, to a lot of kids. But if they needed vulnerability at that point, it was exactly what the doctor ordered. Later on, when I was in high school and I kept that vulnerability, but I was also varsity football, friends with all the cool kids, then that vulnerability was really an attractive trait that ended up being something that worked in my favor. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's a a couple of things in there that I would love to unpack with you because I think what you just described is this sort of... um, you know, confidence piece of, is it learned or is it something that, that we're inherently born with, right? Like Gary V would just say, oh yeah, I'm just like, I just have hustle in my blood. Like it's just part of my DNA. It's part of who I am. So I'm curious as to whether, whether you believe that, that confidence is something that's learned, uh, or if it's something that we just naturally have. And then on the other side of that, you know, with the vulnerability piece that you're talking about, when is vulnerability effective? And when is it something that's just like oversharing? Is this something that Brene Brown talks a lot about in terms of, you know, when when there's there's so much, there's a, there's a thing as oversharing and being over-vulnerable or trying to use vulnerability to get what we want. So I would love for you to just unpack a little bit about that because I think it's important.
1: Yeah, I've noticed this weird slash actually kind of annoying trend online recently. And it's actually like this, there's all these so-called thought leaders, which is a term I also find highly annoying and stupid. <laughs> um, but there's all these so-called thought leaders, and they do things like, like, um, they'll post something, my biggest failure, this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like, okay, cool, there's a time and a place for that. Maybe your audience really needs to hear that. So they get like 300 likes on that on that long post. Then they'll post some victory. That's not necessarily a major victory, like having a baby or getting married. And they'll only get 150 likes because not as many people can relate. So it's just people who are happy for them in that moment, which are fewer, but everybody can relate to this failure. So then they're like, oh, well, this is getting more engagement. So I'm going to write all about my failures only. So you get all these people who's like, their cottage industry is, here's everything I suck at. And it's every day. And it's, you know, I'm going through a really hard time. And it's always this sympathy play or a failure that I've experienced. And there's, again, it's not, it's not something you should never do. There's a time and a place for that. But they do this and it gets more engagement and more likes. So we're training ourselves and we're training these people we follow on social media to share all of that stuff. And it only works if you have, like I said before, a certain level of social status. So if Gary Vaynerchuk is like, what I learned from losing 10 million, when, uh, here's a guy that actually does this, James uh, Altucher. He writes like, what I learned from losing $17 million. And it's like, holy crap, $17 million, that's bananas. You know, I want to learn what you learned from that. That's great because now you're back on top and you've got this cool show and I really like your writing and all this. So they, the, the level of social status that he has allows him to say, here's all this dumb stuff I do wrong, right? And his comedy, he's got comedy because he's doing stand-up just for fun. He's got a comedy routine where he's like, I didn't even lose my virginity until I had my second child, right? And it's like, it's funny because he's like this cool entrepreneur guy, right? Maybe not cool. He's a well-known entrepreneur guy. I think being uncool is his thing, right? And that's okay. It works for him. But if that's all he did and he was like this lonely guy who was broke, you'd be like, I don't know how much (laughs) of this I want to subject myself to. And the only people that get away with that are comedians. And there's only a certain type of comedian that can get away with that. And the only ones that are successful, like you get the Louis Black, who all they do is complain. But he's a successful comedian. So he also balances that in his real career with, oh, well, it's a shtick. And he's really successful doing it. And he's like the best complainer, right? Mm -hmm. That's his whole thing is he's the best complainer. But we get this cottage industry of people who are like, I need to complain more. And it's just BS. It's dumb. It doesn't make any sense. And it, it ends up being a way for them to get, to garner status. And it's, it, it's kind of not really working, in I my feel, opinion.
0: I feel like it's, a, like it's a form of manipulation. You know, I, I, I especially, and I don't know if this is true for you as well, but I especially see a lot of like, quote unquote, uh, coaches doing that where they'll yeah. be, they'll kind of be like using it as a form of like relatability so that people mm-hmm. have a, people have a, a connective place to them. And, and they would be like, Oh my God, I'm going through the same thing. Or I was going through the same thing. And, and it's, it's almost like sharing from a space of trying to get something rather than genuinely being like, Hey, this is my experience right now in the moment. It's like, I'm going to put this out there on Facebook or whatever platform so that I can get clients who are going through the same thing. Um, except I think it sort of backfires because, to a certain degree, at least for me, when I see stuff like that, it actually—and—and and I would love to hear your perspective on this. But it actually, for me, diminishes some form of credibility. You know, there's there's a certain there's just like a certain line where I feel like people start to cross it, and it and it actually diminishes their credibility. I'm curious as to your insight on that.
1: Okay, well, let's talk about what you think the line is and give me an example, because I I think I've I've. I follow you, but I want to make sure that we're talking about the same thing, otherwise it's not going to make any sense,
0: yeah, so if somebody's like a relationship coach, for example, and they are constantly putting stuff up on uh up online whether it's like Facebook or whatever the platform is, and they're sharing examples from clients and they're sharing their own personal examples, and you know they're constantly opening up about like their own personal sexuality or you know their their endeavors and whatnot and it it's it's always sort of like uh, a vulnerable share, where's the line? Because if, I've seen some people that will overshare and, you know, you can like see it in the comments where people are like, oh, you know, like, I don't know how appropriate this is, or, oh, this oh, doesn't yeah. re- resonate with me. And it's just like, oh, are you sure you should be sharing that on like a social platform? And so I think that there's kind of like, there's a, there's a line in the sand where it stops being connective and it starts being actually disruptive and, and creates a barrier.
1: Yeah, there certainly is that, especially in business. And I've noticed this. There's a couple people that you and I probably have in common, I'm not sure. But there's there's one guy I know that posts a lot about podcasting and then also things like guns and um, I think abortion or something, just like really sensitive topics. And I'm thinking, okay, you're trying to teach people how to be more responsible men, or, among other things. It's got everything. But I'm like, you don't really have to include this partisan stuff in there. Mm. It's not mandatory. If you're talking about responsibility, both sides of the fence can talk about this. But if you're talking about like you have to allow guns, whatever your stance on that, you're just alienating a certain percentage of your audience. Your show or your platform is not about guns and or nor about hunting or anything. So it really doesn't have any relevance or bearing there. Mm. Um. You know, if you're talking about net neutrality, it's an issue that a lot of people can agree on. I'm not saying you shouldn't talk about controversial things, but I'm saying here that the the rubric should be what value add is this? And so if I'm a life coach, which I'm not, I hate that term, but if I'm a, some sort of life coach, do I need to talk about my I don't know, my divorce uh, on social media? okay, if i'm if I'm teaching people relationship stuff, Maybe I should talk about my divorce a few years ago. Maybe I should share that those stories and how I overcame the particulars of that issue. But if I'm talking about something that's happening right now and I'm talking about like, oh, I just had a, I lost my baby or something like that. It's like, okay, well, that's something that's really deep and personal. You're going to screen in a certain type of person, but you're also going to scare away people who maybe are not willing to share that type of thing about themselves if that's your goal then okay then share that but i don't think it's necessary i think i'm very very open on the art of trump podcast i talk about a lot of things but if if i were talking about something political you you would there's a hard line at some point because I just there's no value in me being like, and also the president this and that, and is an idiot. Like I'm not taking a liberal or conservative stance uh, in general. I might take a common sense stance or what I think is a common sense stance on certain things, like hey, we should have an independent judiciary. People who disagree with that would be considered, you know, authoritarian, and that's a weird, extremist political view that I think I could I could do without. However. Um, I'm not going to alienate purposely a certain percentage of the audience because I'm there's this nebulous like I got to stand up for what's right. It's not. It's just your opinion. It's your opinion and it's alienating a lot of the people that you could potentially help. And so there's people who go, well, so what if I scare away some customers? I don't want their money. It's not that. It's that if you're sitting around talking about the Second Amendment stuff all the time, how do you know you're not scaring away somebody that needs your help in other areas where you're actually qualified to speak other than you're a gun owner? I mean, it just doesn't matter. So you really have to look at where you are offering value to other people, and you should stick to that as a platform, in my opinion. And if you look at a lot of entrepreneurs at the highest levels, guys like Larry Page and stuff, Uh, over at Google, they don't talk a lot about their personal stuff. They just—they don't. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is because I'm not looking to Larry Page to figure out whether or not gay marriage should be legal. I don't care what his opinion is on that. And yeah, he could probably influence some people, but I, I don't really think, and I think it looks like he agrees that that's not really his area of expertise. And therefore he declines to really share his opinion on those things. And I think that's important. And I think you're right. I think there's a certain caliber of people on Facebook that are just sharing everything and it works for a certain core level of their audience that feels like they're friends with that person that I think is going to blow up in their face when Mm -hmm. they're trying to scale their business. They're going to wind up with a bunch of people who are like, Oh, I'm really good friends with them. I don't know if I want to pay for their next thing because we're friends or you're going to end up with a, a bunch of people that are like, whoa, I just stopped by this guy's webpage and this is, there's all this stuff in there. I don't know if I need to know that. So you become something to be maybe more gawked at or possibly also something where people have an invisible personal relationship with you, but they're not necessarily engaging your products and services, which is bad for your business. And I know that people are like, it shouldn't be about the money. Fine, if you can survive another way, then fine. But otherwise, I think you should pay attention to what you're putting out there because like you said, you lose credibility if you overshare. Mm -hmm. Um, but the oversharing has less to do with the degree of sharing and more to do with the the, the subject matter. I think I could say something like, Jenny and I are having marriage problems or something like that. We're not, for the record, but I think (laughs) I could talk about that in a few years and people be like, oh my gosh, even this guy who I really respect and trust is having this and he's working through it and he's talking about it, respect. But if I'm like, gun people are crazy, well, then a certain percentage of my audience is going to be like, I don't give a shit what you think, Jordan. Why are you even telling me this? Now you're just pissing me off what yeah. value is it of to my audience for me to opine on that subject nothing well I'm just standing up for what's right okay fine but millions of people disagree with you so what you've proven nothing
0: yeah I mean it's really interesting because I I've, I've started to see this I actually was writing an article the other day uh, around this concept that people are paying nowadays for opinions more so than facts and it's really yeah. interesting because you know a big part of what you're saying is really around the the, the concept that like you know, people are looking for an opinion. They're looking for an opinion that matches up with their own, you know, and and they will discard often the facts that are right in front of them to have their own opinion opinion validated. And there's so much power in that, right? Like we all want to be right. We all want to be told that we're right. We all want to see that we're right. And we, we all want to be surrounded by people who agree with our own opinions, regardless of the facts. And so it's really interesting to hear you say that when, you know, you've you've built up a platform that is you know viewed by millions and millions of people, and I think that there's a certain degree of responsibility in that to you know address the facts in 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 a lot of situations, still be able to communicate our opinion because we all have an opinion, right? Um, but but still ingrain and integrate the facts into that. So, how have you seen you know this huge rise in in? Uh, social media impacts our level of awareness in terms of how we are leaning towards more opinion based uh, realities than fact based realities?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that there's a lot that uh, when it comes to this, and I think that in part, it's, we don't get social cues in direct response to social media. So if you post something, and you're like, I'm sad today about this. I might click like just to empathize with you, not because I agree. But if I'm in front of you and there's 48 other people who all clicked like in front of you, we don't necessarily all have the same reaction. Some people empathize with you. Some people think, oh, man, I feel bad for you, but I don't want to have anything to do with this. Other people are like, I've had that problem too. Uh, Other people are thinking, "Uh, yikes, you know, I don't really think this is appropriate, but... I like some of the other stuff you're doing. So here's a like as a pat on the back, you know, chin up. We don't get that kind of feedback on social media. And so we end up with a bunch of people clicking like, and the only feedback is, wow, this got a lot of likes. Maybe I should keep talking about it. When the reality of the situation is that that's not really the reaction people are having. So we end up being either much more cagey about what we share because so many people can see it. Or to a larger extent, like you said, we end up sharing a ton of stuff that, you know, isn't really necessarily on message or isn't really necessarily a value or that maybe shouldn't be shared at all in such a public forum. And then also there's a permanent record of it. So if I have an embarrassing share in front of 10 people and they're really, they're like, look, you know, weak moment or look, I agree with you or look, let's have a discussion about it," it. It doesn't exist forever in space time, right? Whereas if it's on Facebook or Twitter, people go up and dig up tweets from people from like five years ago and they're like, you said this before. Now you're saying that you're, you know, here's an inconsistency. You're allowed to have those inconsistencies. But when you're sharing your deepest moments with people, that's a problem. And if you're running a business on that platform, it's a bigger problem. And if you change your mind later, it's a huge problem. And if you're posting photo evidence of you doing something that you probably shouldn't be doing, you end up with these things we see in the news. So for me, my platform has millions of people listening and I am very careful about what I share, but I'm also very open in the areas, like I said, where I have I think where I can deliver value and where I have credibility. Um, But you're right. It encourages oversharing in a negative way or in a way that I think can be negative because you get people who are just like, I'm going to put everything out there and be completely trans transparent. And I remember a few years ago, there were a couple of women who were like, I'm going to just say whatever's on my mind and be completely transparent and da da da, And they ended up with this huge audience of guys and girls that were just kind of, like relating to every single thing they did and they they live casted everything and everything they ate was social media and all this crap. And it looked like this girl was going to get a movie deal and it looked like she was going to get hired by Apple. And I was like, man, I'm in the wrong business. Now, that nobody cares about her at all. She's totally irrelevant. They've moved on to a different person who's maybe younger or better looking or more interesting um, because all it was was a lot, it was the Truman Show, right? Mm. Except for it was like this voluntary, voluntary share And then people kind of figured out like, "Eh, I don't really want her representing my brand because she was oversharing in one area and Apple was like, this is great. This is a person who's using tech and her iPhone everywhere. Let's hire her. And then it was like, here's all the sex toys I'm using. And Apple was like, nope, see you later. (laughs) And and the sex toy company was like, this is great. This person's repping all of our products. And then she's like, I'm anti-abortion. And the sex toy company was like, nah, see you later. And then all these conservatives were like, Oh, good. Somebody in tech who's representing our views. What the hell is this crap about sex toys? Next. You know, so it ended up being like, oh, we don't want the whole you. We just want the the curated version of you. So the people that really wanted the whole her were just these gawkers on the Internet that were like, oh, well, there's a million of you now. So, you know, you're not as interesting as you were three years ago. See you later. So now she's just this person with all of her personal crap everywhere on the Web that she can't get rid of. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Touch I mean, that's <clears throat> that, that. I mean that's pretty tough. And I, I think, you know, what you're talking about is extraordinarily important. And it brings up for me, this, this concept of how do you stay, how do you stay socially relevant? You know, because I mean, you guys have been around since what, like 2007, 2008, I believe. Um, like you've been around yeah. for a, a long time. And, and not only that, like you've, you've stayed relevant the entire time you've managed to adapt. And I think that this is something that a lot of not only not only individuals, but we see a lot of businesses really struggle with. And so I'm I'm curious if you can address some of that, because we have some massive freaking changes on the horizon, you know, like with artificial intelligence really developing. I mean, Facebook had uh, to shut down their AI the other day, right? Because they were developing. They were using the the English language to curate their cur- cure. Uh, yeah. Curate their own language out of that. Um, so we have like some big Could changes coming hand. up. Was that?
1: I didn't know that. That's awesome. i, yeah. I got to read about that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really cool. So, but I, I'm, I'm interested to hear, like how have you guys stayed socially relevant? And what do you see from a social dynamic standpoint that allows individuals or companies to actually stay relevant throughout time? Like Ryan, Ryan Holiday has got his new book out, uh, Perennial Seller, I believe, that it kind of yeah. addresses some of this. But I'm curious to get your insight.
1: Yeah, you know, what? the reason I think we've stayed relevant is that we have, instead of spending the time sharing everything that we can and working on the vulnerability and being on Periscope and Snapchat and Meerkat and Facebook and Twitter and all these other ones, instead of worrying about sharing everything and relating to everybody in every possible way – um, me, I've been working on creating better interviews on the Art of Charm podcast, becoming a better broadcaster, becoming a better speaker, becoming a better performer. My producers worked on learning new audio tools, figuring out how to cure sound defects, working on wrangling the guests, making sure the preparation is better than it, than any other show. Um, leveling up the caliber of guests, our audio engineers worked on figuring out complex sound issues, making our file size smaller so that we can serve more people more efficiently, uh, while keeping our hosting bill low, our, our marketing guys and all these other things have followed similar suit. They've worked on getting better at their craft instead of working better at like being more vulnerable or relating or documenting everything that we're doing, which was the common prevailing wisdom three years ago, four years ago, five was document everything you're doing and be all over the internet all the time. And what happened is we got sick of those people. But after five years, those people had five years of documented stuff, big whoop in my opinion. And I've got five years, 10 years now of experience working hard at becoming better at a few different discrete skill sets. Well, who's further along now? Somebody spent five years honing discrete skill sets or somebody who spent five years taking pictures of every fucking thing that they ate. You know, like there's a huge difference in that. And if you're learning how to write about being vulnerable, that's great. Do you have books about vulnerability that you're able to produce? Or do you just have a bunch of posts about things that you screwed up in your life? There's a huge difference between those two things. Did you focus on being the best vulnerability writer, the best vulnerability therapist, the best vulnerability speaker, or did you just post a lot about being vulnerable? Right. Mm -hmm. So if you look at somebody like Brene Brown, who's amazing, her thing is all about vulnerability and shame. She gets 90K for a keynote speech because she's the best thought leader, innovator, course teacher, and speaker around shame and vulnerability. She's not just the most vulnerable person. She's the best person at expressing how that works and how other people can use it and harness it and manage it and mitigate it or whatever is required. That's what she's good at. And that's the skill set that she developed, and that's massively important. And the difference between those two things could not be greater. Does mm-hmm. that make sense?
0: That oh, man, you you're you're preaching right now. I love it, and I think that it's I think that's a huge component of what a lot of people need to hear because i think a lot of people you know we're even whether you're a business owner or whether you are a career person and you you know you're professional you work nine to five or like whatever whatever your job is so many people are being told like your social media presence whether it's on linkedin or whether it's your company's social media presence is is so inherently important and so they get lost in this like creating uh, an online mask right like we we have this sort of like esoteric masks of our identity, but then we create these masks for our business as well. And we create these like facades online. And so we spend more time creating the facade of what our company is doing online than we actually do curating um, the the depth of of our actual craft in our trade. And so I think what you're talking Uh, about is hugely important.
1: Yeah, it happens in companies and it happens with people. And I found that like, if you look at the Art of Charm Facebook page, it's there's some recent posts on there from our blog. There's a bunch of recent podcasts on there. It's not about how cool me and AJ and Johnny are, right? It's not, <laughs> or my producers or the back uh, back office. It's not about that. Nobody but you guys, cares. but you guys
0: are pretty cool, though.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, but but we don't we don't go out of the way to 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 sort of curate that because we figure that the Art of Charm podcast, the show that everyone consumes. This is something that people can hear and they can decide for themselves. I don't have to like post a picture of me. I'm eating orange chicken right now. I'm in Switzerland right now. Like I'll post some things on my personal page. if people want to follow me and engage with me there, I love it, but it's not designed to get people to think just Jordan guy's so great. I got to go listen to this podcast, right? Mm -hmm. It's not, And and it's important to not always be focused on that because you can have to, if you have to change directions, then you're in trouble. And I also know, I notice that a lot of companies spend a lot of time selling emotion and that's great. That's marketing, but you can't only sell that. If that's the only reason you're selling your product, then you need a different product. And you're right. There's a lot of, on the Twitter, I, the Twitter, on the Twitter, uh, the AOC Twitter at the art of charm. I use that just to engage with fans of the show. There's some contests on there. I post blog stuff on there. I post interesting, even funny things on there. But I usually use it just to engage with fans of the show and to engage in feedback or people who are critical of the show. I I listen there, right? It's easier for them them than people looking at my email and trying to get in touch with me that way or something like that. Um, And I use Facebook personally, but I'm not on Snapchat. And people were like, blasphemy, you're not on Snapchat. Oh my God, that's terrible. What are you doing? And I don't use Instagram. They're like, what? And Art of Charm has an Instagram that's just pictures of guys at boot camp little videos and shorts of things like that, but it's not Jordan's eating tacos with the crew. I don't do that. <laughs> I don't do that. And people used to think like, Oh my God, you're missing out on so many followers. And I have friends that over the years have developed six figure followings on Instagram and Snapchat. And it's funny. Cause when I talk to them now, they're like, man, these people that are following me on here are just a bunch of turds. They're like, they never, they never engaged my book. I barely sold anything through it. um, they, they click like on photos of me hanging out with my girlfriend. But like, that's really the beginning and the end of the engagement. They're not messaging me that much on here other than like, cool bro on a photo. There's really no depth. And I'm like, yeah, dude, hello. That's why I never bothered with this crap. Mm. And other people, they swear by it. And I'm thinking, okay, cool. Well, you're a model. So it makes sense. Or you're a photographer. So it makes sense. So I'm not trashing the platform. I'm trashing the idea that everybody needs to be engaging with this at all times. And I know tons of people who are like fitness folks and they're always on Snapchat and they love doing it. And I'm thinking like, okay, well, is this the primary you engage with your audience? If so, have at it. If you're having fun, great. I would much rather spend the five hours of the week making another episode of the art of charm. That's really good. Reading the author's book, creating a lot of prep around it, creating a great show, which is part of my body of work. Like, like an author has books, I have shows then being like, Oh, well, I didn't create anything this week, but you know, my LinkedIn inbox is empty or I did 20 snaps of me on my trip where people follow me and have this aspirational thing that they want to be more like us. Look, you can get that by creating really good work. It's just a lot harder. Yeah. It's a hell of a lot harder.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like we're in this sort of like dichotomy right now where you know, Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week came out almost a decade ago, and it really inspired a lot of people to try and create these, you know, get rich fast, and you know, be able to travel and and all that kind of stuff. And I think I think people almost took it wrong sometimes because it was it, yeah. it's almost like it's almost like they lost the the actual core messaging of what he was talking about, which is you know this is all to set your life up so that you can use that time to hone in on, on the shit that really matters to you, to hone in on your craft, to hone in on, on developing a better product or a better service or a better message in, in our case. So I, I really appreciate that insight. So just because we got to start wrapping up here soon, I'm, I'm curious as to uh, you know how you see technology starting to evolve and whether or not you think that people will come back to this idea of putting the work in, in order to, not in order to make it work, but in order to make better products, better services, rather than having the sort of like flashy lifestyle.
1: Yeah, I think there's a certain caliber of people that are maybe, this is going to be a tough one, but I I think they're just less intelligent and less mature Mm. that follow aspirational stuff online. And that's what they're primarily looking at, right? They're looking at chicks on Instagram, And they're looking at guys who they think are making money living in private jets. And they live in this daydream world of that bullshit. It's just bullshit. And I think once you get into your twenties and in your thirties and you start figuring out who you are more, especially your forties. So I've heard uh, you figure out more about what your purpose is. You have no time for that shit. Mm. Zero time. Um, I never got really interested in that stuff. It's not that I don't follow anybody online. It's not that I don't watch a video from somebody who I think is a good creator or that I listen to a podcast from somebody who I think is doing well, but I just choose deep dives over breadth and, and, and I choose uh, valuable information over intellectual or non-intellectual masturbation um, of the type where I'm not watching a, about somebody else's lifestyle. I'm thinking like, man, if only – I'm like, how do I get what I want to get done, which is build the Art of Charm podcast audience, which has been working. And that's the reason that we've stayed relevant for 10 years and gone way up to almost 4 million a month here because this is something that I've been focused on. I'm focused on the quality of the work. The, the people who are really, really good at marketing and they do all this lifestyle stuff, they grow really fast and then they plateau and then they also trickle down into nothingness when they've hit everyone and people are like eh, this isn't really it's just kind of another guy that's cool or whatever Hit in vegas with my bros that only lasts a certain amount of time what we're trying to do at art of charm is get people going whoa this is really good i want to listen to all of these for a long time because i'm not going to outgrow this because it's about learning and growing as well, And it's intelligent content and it's well researched and you can't find the quality elsewhere. Whereas if, you've, if you find somebody who's good at marketing but their content is eh, middle of the road, what you find then is a lot of people leave them for the next thing that's middle of the road or the next thing that's middle of the road. And that's not a place where I want to be. I want to be so good that people can't ignore what we're doing. Mm. And I do that to the detriment of telling everybody about it all the time and yelling from the rooftops all the time because I'm not as good at marketing it as I am at creating it. And that's okay because you can hire marketers. There's marketers that can get the word out for you. And even that process might be slow unless you're willing to be spammy and and, and engage in hyperbole, which I don't really like. So I'm cool growing at 3% per month forever if it means that those people are going to stick with what we're doing here. I'm cool yeah. with that. What I don't want to do is grow 10% per month for two years and then flatten out or, or one year or six months, flatten out and then decrease at 5 or 10% or 20% per month You know, from from there forward. It's, that's not what I want to do. I'm going to be doing this when I'm older and go, wow, I've had this audience for 20, 30, 40 years now. This is impressive. Not... Okay, now I'm teaching people how to make money online. Okay, now I'm teaching fitness. Now I'm a life coach. Now I'm an entrepreneur who's teaching people how to create businesses about fitness and blah, 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 because that's what I did in the past. Like, it's just stupid, and I see that online all the time. There's these guys who built a uh, e-book business, and then two years from now, they're teaching fitness, and then two years from then, they're teaching people how to create fitness and e-book businesses because that's what they did before. So now they're teaching people online about how to make money online, and I'm just thinking... This is the race to the bottom. You are now engaged in the – you are now behind the The – you've crossed the Rubicon into the industrial bullshit uh, – the bullshit industrial complex, right? Where you're now teaching people – about teaching people a skill to make money online because now you're just trying to survive. You got nothing now. Yeah. So now you're meta you're, – you're monetizing the meta. And that's just a bunch of horse shit, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean, what you just said there, it's a race to the bottom, I think is, I mean, that's the nail in the coffin, right? And this is something that we've, that I think personally, even like I've, I've struggled with, but I've seen have tremendous impact. Like when we were... You know, like we're not huge around North America, but in the cities that we're in, our events are really great. We have mastermind groups and the more that we've focused in on developing the content and developing the experience for, you know, the couple hundred members that we do have the the like the the results the roi on that has been so much better than growing our instagram following or growing our facebook following because like people just aren't really engaged and i think for me it's like what what do you want your impact to be and for me it's like i want to have in-person impact you know we we have these groups that that meet up it's like that's that's the real shit that i want to invest in that's the real uh, commitment that I'm committed to, and it sounds like for you, it's the long term play. You know, if it was a golf analogy, it's about playing all 18 holes rather than just going through one or two, pounding a bunch of beers, making a bunch of money, and then piecing out from the course.
1: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You've got to. I, 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 people say this all the time, but nobody listens. It's much better to have depth and and loyalty of engagement than it is to have this wide breadth appeal. If you cast a wide net you're just catching a bunch of people who are going to move on to the next thing. Mm. If you're looking for a specific type of person and if you're filtering for the highest quality people, we just got our listener survey back from Edison research, which is like a, you know,
0: yeah, they're huge
1: survey. Yeah. Company, um, our audience, I'll just get the real numbers for you. Hold on one second. So, uh, I just realized cause we hit a new, we hit 3.8 million downloads for the month of July. And I had my old stat in here from June, which is 3.6. That gives you an idea of how much we're growing. This is a huge growth month. It's not typical, but It was, I I definitely want to keep that up to date. Okay, so look, NPR, you're familiar with NPR. This is a very, it's a liberal audience, but it's very educated and it's very affluent. Surprise, that's what like the liberal demographic is, right? Uh, NPR, 58% of their audience has a college degree. 92% of the AOC audience has a college degree. Wow. So 92 versus 58 uh, $50,000 a year or more NPR 73%. That's a very high number. The U S average is like 38,000 or less or something like that. I think, um, and it for the AOC NPR 73% AOC, 85% make over 50 K a year. Wow. So much more educated and much more affluent than NPR, which is much more educated and much more affluent than the U S average. So, in fact, I'm going to put in a note to edit and to add in U.S. averages because I think that's even more of a drastic add U.S. averages to Okay, cool. Yeah, I want to add that in there because I think that's extremely important because when you look at the U.S. average, you're just like, wait, what? (laughs) Uh, In fact, I can give you the U.S. averages, so you don't have to look those up if you're curious because I think some people might be. So I'm pretty sure we've added these two. another place on – yes, we have. So college degree 92% of AOC audience has a college degree 37% of the US has a college degree that's the average. Hmm. So 92% versus 37%. That's
0: that's crazy. crazy. That's nuts. Uh,
1: yeah, it's it's nuts. And 85% make over $50,000 a year the US average is 31%. Hmm. So you're looking so at it is- almost three times.
0: This is like the, this is the power of curation though, right? I mean, you guys have been crafting your message for years and years and years, very specifically to attract, I mean, actually here's, here's something that I would love to touch on before we just start to wrap up is, is how important do you believe it is to have a very clear uh, demographic in mind? Like obviously you guys have, you started off with a very focused demographic, but it's grown exponentially. So how did you keep in line? with that demographic as you've grown because I think a lot of businesses and a lot of people struggle with this.
1: Yeah, we grew slowly um, and that wasn't necessarily by design, but I I didn't want to dumb down the marketing or the message and I noticed that a lot of folks that do that, and I won't mention any specifics obviously, but there's a lot of places and shows, for example, other shows, they'll be like, I'm just going to have entrepreneurs come on and talk about inspiration and it's like, well, great, but inspiration sort of drops off at the 120 IQ level when people go like, oh, wait, I need more than motivation to be successful. Uh, Okay. So you see these people who basically their entire product is motivation and inspiration. And all they do is yell at you or they have entrepreneurs that come on and talk about their favorite book or whatever. And that's a whole value of the whole episode of the show. That's not, that, that's not going to keep a smart, educated person there for very long because that person wants something more, something smarter, something more proactive, something more in-depth, which creates a longer time to create. So I might end up with a few thousand new, sub, more, new subscribers each month, but those subscribers are smarter, more affluent, and more interesting and more successful than someone else who's like, I'm on YouTube and I got a ton of subscribers this month. And the comments are like, this girl's booty for the win, you know, like that's the crap you see in those video comments that that's not the same thing that you see on comments to the art of charm episodes or in my inbox. Mm. You just, I don't get those because the audience is like, Hey, I'm the assistant governor of Missouri and I really liked this episode. And so did the governor and blah, 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 blah. I get email like that. Um, I get email from heads of, I, I won't even talk about the, 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 the extreme cases. The average listener of AOC is a smart, educated, affluent person period. That's much more rewarding. All other things considered, sure, advertisers pay the same amount per, per listen, but I don't care about that. I care more about the people that are listening and the people that are taking action because it's more important to me to reach people who are going to use the stuff that we're talking about on the Art of Trump podcast than just people who are like, I'm inspired because I heard my favorite YouTuber who I have a crush on on such and such podcast. I don't <laughs> want that because they can yeah. get that anywhere. They can get that anywhere. What they can't get is smart content, and that's what we're striving to create. And it's not easy. So yeah. it's a slower growth curve, but it's more valuable in the long run.
0: I love it, man. I love it. I, I think you know that's that's a very similar aim to what we have taken or the approach that we've taken here with the Man Talks podcast is is to provide value because you know at the end of the day. Guys like you and I aren't just talking for the sense of talking to hear our own voice you know like we want people to take action and crafting right. our message and our and our you know our shows in such a way that people can actually take action and get intelligent conversations out of it so they can go out in the world and implement some of the stuff that we talk about is the whole freaking point otherwise yes. you're just talking to hear yourself talk right
1: and, and the the metric becomes how, like, oh, look, I got 87 likes or 1,087 likes on my Instagram post. That only looks good if you're trying to show other people what you're doing. Uh, at AOC, we've spent 10 years, more than 10 years, not caring to show other people what we're doing because I don't need to be thought of as special by other people on the internet. I just don't care. So ironically, what that has done has created a cadre of people that are That the cadre of people that are special and exceptional in their own right, who are listening to what we're creating, which is much more valuable than me going, look, I get a blue check mark on my Instagram account. That means I'm verified. I'm special. You should have me speak at your event where everyone treats us like celebrities who gives a shit. That's not adding value to anybody but yourself. And you're replaceable. You're just a pretty face, if that.
0: I love it, man. I love it. Well, we got to wrap up here. So um, the last thing that uh, that I wanted to quickly chat about, uh, you mentioned that you guys have uh, the AOC challenge, the 10-week challenge. Can you just tell our listeners a little bit about that? Because I would love for them to check it out. Yeah. So
1: we didn't touch much on anything that we actually do here at AOC, but we teach <laughs> social intelligence in a way that anyone can learn and master. We study the thoughts, the actions, the habits of brilliant people, Ask them what I hope are smart questions so that the audience can apply that same wisdom for themselves. So we basically take other people's superpowers and deliver them to you. And um the Art of Charm challenge is about delivering some of the value when it comes to relationships and networking. And that's at the artofcharm.com slash challenge. And people can go there or they can text uh they can text in, they can tweet in. In fact, let me go ahead and get the actual text in number because we just changed it. If you text AOC to 38470. So the number is 38470. If you text AOC, it'll be like, what's your email? Um, we'll send you challenges for the next 10 weeks that are like, they're not stupid social things. A lot of them are like, okay, go and evaluate this thing. Post a video about it or post your, your values in the group so we can comment on them. Um, do some thinking about what your personal values are. So it's not super, super in-depth. They're quick little things. It's gonna end up being like 90 minutes a month um, that you need to invest in it. It's short. But the idea is dip your toes in the water, get some practical stuff out there, uh, learn how to develop connections a little bit more strongly. And it, it, it's just a basic little intro to what we have online. And of course, I'd love it if, if people would check out the Art of Charm podcast, because I think you're listening to a podcast right now. You might as well listen to the Art of Charm, which I would like to think
0: is one of the best around. I, I agree. I mean and uh and iTunes would agree a hundred percent. You got some, some great episodes. Just on just on that note, actually, if uh if people were to go check it out, um you, do you have any recommendations on which podcast episode they should go listen to? Like do you have a couple fan not fan favorites, but personal favorites that that you think would stand out for people? I know that's kinda hard because you guys are like eight hundred or nine hundred episodes in now, but yeah. Uh,
1: we are we are eight hundred and twenty-eight episodes in amazing as of, or 829 as of today. But uh yeah, we, we I interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's a scientist. Um I interviewed uh, Vanessa Van Edwards about body language, Jim Quick about the brain, Shaquille O'Neal, Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs, Tony Hawk. Uh I assembled if you go to the slash best there's a handful of of actual fan favorites that also overlap with some of my personal favorites. It's uh, so not 100% overlap, but theartofcharm.com slash best. For people who are like, I don't want to go and figure out which ones to listen to, just go to theartofcharm.com slash best, and you'll find some stuff. Or if you're looking in iTunes or, or Spotify, just search for The Art of Charm, scroll till you see a name you recognize, like Shaquille O'Neal. Can't go wrong. <laughs> that episode was great. It was the only interview that Shaq did that was an hour long, other than I think 60 minutes that he did like a decade ago or something.
0: Wow. So. That's crazy. That is very crazy. And if I could uh, recommend somebody from that list, I would definitely check out Jim Quick. I saw him speak uh, live at Archangel Academy uh, in February and he was amazing. That guy's like yeah, he's, he's fast. He's got some cool information. Um, sweet, brother. Well, we will include that in the show notes below uh, on the on the website. For all the listeners out there, definitely head over to The Art of Charm. Uh, check that out. You could also check out uh, Jordan at jordanharbringer.com. Um, and, um, yeah, brother, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, this is fun. You know, we went off on, like, a crazy I never talk about this stuff, so it's fun for me.
0: Awesome, brother. Well, I'm, I'm glad because I think that that's huge value and it's some really great conversation. For everybody else out there, don't forget to head on over to, to iTunes or Stitcher, subscribe, leave a review. Uh, and for everybody that's out there listening, this is Connor Beaton signing off. We will see you next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.